When I was in Iowa about a month ago, speaking at uh, Iowa Yearly Meeting Pastors Retreat, I was able to spend a couple of hours on Sunday afternoon prior to the retreat with some extended family. On the Wagner side, I had not seen them in almost 30 years. We had this little mini reunion in Marshalltown, Iowa at First Friends Marshalltown. Wonderful time. An aunt, cousins, again, I had not seen in such a long time. My cousin Terry Wagner, who has spent most of her career, her life, being a missionary, she brought me something that she wanted me to have, and it's right here. It's a Bible. But um, it's not uh, just any Bible. This is the Bible that belonged to my grandfather Wagner, my dad's dad, Otha Samuel Wagner. Now, I never met my grandpa Wagner, unfortunately. He died January 30th, 1952, at 54 years old. Uh, Complications with his work, bad heart, uh, bad lungs, just not able to be treated very well, and um, died at Iowa City and left uh, a wife, my grandmother, and, and five children. So I was honored to receive this Bible of my grandfather Wagner, who I'd never met, and I'd heard much about later that afternoon, my uncle uh, Dick, my dad's oldest brother and sibling, 88 years old, took me by the Legrand Cemetery, Legrand, Iowa, and showed me the grave of both my grandparents as well as other relatives, and we had a wonderful time talking about my grandfather Wagner and the kids, and, and uh, I, in fact, I mentioned this to my dad when I was up there a couple weeks ago, and I said, hey, I've got your dad's Bible, and uh, he just kind of smiled. He said, yeah, he said... Old dad, he said, we were not allowed to read the funny papers on Sunday morning before we went to church. Uh, we, had to, uh, we had to just either read the scripture um, or just sit and get ready to go to church. Um, in this Bible, too, I found a worship bulletin of Heartland Friends Church, 1958, which they had their centennial. And in it, my dad is mentioned as one of the many folks who came out of that meeting and entered into pastoral ministry. And uh, what I also found in here when I was looking through it last night, my grandmother, after my grandfather passed away, uh, recorded not only all her children who were born and who they married, but she recorded all the grandchildren that were born. And uh, because I think she either got tired of recording them or she just couldn't keep track, she stopped at my sister. So Carla has one thing up on me. I'm not recorded in the Bible. She is. And she's on her way to Indiana right now, so I'll make sure I tell her that. This, though, is going with us to Indiana in December when we go visit family. Because every Christmas, my dad, before we rip open the presents, reads the story of the birth of Jesus out of one of the Gospels. And this year, this is going to go with us. And this year, he's going to read that story of Jesus' birth out of his father's Bible. Now, receiving this Bible connected me in a profound way a way that I had not ever expected. I'd never met my Grandpa Wagner. I have pictures of him in my desk over at the office. Quite a dashing young man. We've traced the Wagner family from Boonville, North Carolina to LeGrand, but this Bible felt personal. It's sort of that like missing link you have when you're trying to make all, all those connections in your life. And so I treasure it. I really do. I value it very much. Um, but here's the thing. It's only a second hand of knowing him. I can see where he made the marks in the Bible. There's the dates I said when each child was born, when they were married. I think my grandmother did some of that filling in. But this is all secondhand information that's passed on to me. 
It's nothing I experienced directly. I feel as if I know my grandfather a little bit more through this Bible, and I feel I understand him more through this Bible, and I've gone through and I've looked at the passages that he has marked and some of the little notes that he made, but it's not the same as ever knowing him firsthand and walking with him and visiting with him and spending summers with him. It's just not the same. On this, our 262nd birthday of Deep River Friends, we're also remembering the past. We remember past pastors and leaders. It's in your bulletin. Uh, We have monthly meeting clerks and past pastoral ministers. We have old photos and church directories. And I know some of you cringe at the fact that we have some of those church directories in the back to look at. Some of us have all changed quite a bit. We remember those who've come before us and what they've accomplished Starting this meeting, building this meeting room, adding on the two-story educational wing, the fellowship hall, starting schools, providing active leadership in the community and the yearly meeting. And all of this took faith. It took faith in God, and it took an active faith that sought to follow God's leading and will. And we honor that faithfulness, and we revere that faithfulness, and we even seek to imitate that faithfulness. But here's the thing. It will always be secondhand if it's simply done from this remembering of the past and a kind of nostalgic look back at our history. What we aspire towards is that living what I call a first-hand faith, a faith that is a first-hand experience of Christ and not just an inherited, hand-me-down, second-hand faith from a previous generation. We have every reason to be thankful, friends, for those that have gone on before us, for the property, for the physical property, and for the spiritual legacy. But, As I've seen, it's easy for churches to find it tempting and easy to sort of financially live off the financial endowments of the past. It's easy also to live off the spiritual capital from the past rather than investing ourselves spiritually. There's a fellow by the name of Thomas Kelly. He's a Quaker writer from years ago. Had a rather profound experience and conversion in his life. Studied uh, to get a PhD from, um, I think, Yale it was, I'm not sure, but studied hard for his Ph.D. and, and, and went through all of the, uh, uh, of the, the exams and came to his, 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 his oral defense of his Ph.D. And, and he wanted to get it so he could teach in the biggest schools and the greatest schools. And he gets into this, this oral um, defense and he completely blanks out, literally blanks out as the story goes. To this day, it's kind of hard to describe it. He could not remember a thing and failed his oral um, defense. And so Thomas Kelly goes on to not get this PhD. He goes on to not get the, 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 the cream of the crop positions. But out of that, he has this profound spiritual experience where he writes some of the most profound books, one called A Testament of Devotion, which is a classic, and another one called The Eternal Promise, which has a series of essays that he wrote um, for Quakers. And here's one thing he has to say about the past. You and I exist, he says, as a paled-out remnant of the movement which sprang out of that discovery and that light, the movement called Quakers. Those fires of 1650 and 1660, well, they flicker low. We are, for the most part, respectable, complacent, comfortable with a respectable past, proud of our birthright membership in the Society of Friends, which guarantees us entrance, if not into heaven, at least into a very earthly society translated what Thomas Kelly was basically saying. It really is easy to get romantic about the past and the nostalgia and the history, 
but it really is easy to do that at the expense of never having that first-hand experience ourselves. Thomas Kelly never minced words. You read his stuff. He puts it right out there in terms of spiritual fire and fervor as far as friends are concerned. These scripture texts that uh, Hannah Jane and Thomas read for us this morning, Mark 8, 29, and he asked them, Jesus, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. See, Jesus didn't want his disciples to parrot what others said. He wanted them to search their hearts and come to this place of their own understanding and confession. He wanted them to come to their own understanding of who he was in their life. So there comes this point in time when you and I are invited to come to our own understanding of who Jesus is, that moment of confession, if you will. What if we put ourselves in that position and we hear Jesus say, well, what about you, Scott? Who do you say that I am? Put your name in that place. Or he says, well, what about you, Deep River Friends meeting? Who do you say that I am? And then from Galatians that Thomas read, Paul writes, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that the gospel I preached isn't human in origin. I didn't receive it or learn it from a human. It came through a revelation from Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's encounter was not secondhand. It was revealed directly to him through this personal encounter with Christ, his understanding of his mission, and the gospel was not from another human being. It was revealed directly to him by Christ. And if if we as friends, as Quakers, and I'm sure other groups do as well, but if we have one thing to say, it's that our approach to Christ is unmediated. It is direct. It is experiential. It is something any one of us can have in the moment, at any moment, and doesn't have to be mediated by any person. Christ is here to teach his people himself. You know, George Fox, the founder of Quakers, had that firsthand experience of Christ. In his restless spiritual condition, he went searching for answers from everyone. Priests, he came to that moment of encounter after going to all of his priest friends, his, his family, his neighbors. No one could give him any kind of spiritual satisfaction. And then he came to this awareness, and this is what he writes, there is only one that can speak to my condition, Christ. And in his journal, he says, and this I knew experimentally, which is another way of saying I knew this experientially. I'm thankful for this Bible. I'm rather nostalgic about it, and it connects me in a way that I never thought I would feel connected. But whatever this Bible did for my grandfather Wagner, whatever it did for him, which then eventually did for my father, each of that was their own experience. It doesn't get passed on to me just because I own the Bible. I have to have this first-hand encounter. Whatever history we inherit, whatever past we inherit, is so powerful to move us forward. But what is that personal encounter that we have had as Quakers, as friends, as Deep River, as people? This is what I want to offer um, just very quickly, these first-hand encounters. I think first is experiencing the first-hand encounter of Christ speaking to our condition. I love that phrase, that that Christ has come um, to speak to our condition. I I shared yesterday uh, with a group of folks, and I I tweeted it out, 
that what I like about being a Quaker pastor is I cannot speak to everyone's condition on a Sunday morning. It's impossible. Each of you come with very different needs. Each of you come in very different places. Each of you come with a very different condition. What I do trust, though, is that Christ can speak to each of your conditions. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Maybe there's something I will say that will touch some person. I don't know. I pray that it does. But most of all, Christ can speak to each of your conditions, whatever they may be. Grief, confusion, sadness, restlessness, season of transition and letting go, guilt and shame, boredom, purposelessness, anger, frustration, sometimes brokenness, sometimes sadness, sometimes fear. But I trust and I believe that we can experience firsthand Christ speaking to each of our conditions in such a way that it can be transformative, in such a way that it can bring us to a sense of wholeness and can heal us within, and sometimes even outwardly. My encounters with Christ at this stage in my life have more to do with growing me in a way that I never felt I could grow. It sounds kind of arrogant, but what I mean is it's been a hard growth. It's been a growth that's been involving humility. It's been a growth that's been involving examining myself. It's been a, a growth that's been, been inviting me to more patience, to letting go of things. But it's Christ speaking to my condition and what I need most at this time in my life. I think also that we experienced the firsthand, uh, firsthand experience of Christ's guidance in our own journey as well as a faith community, as a church. Living Christ not only speaks to our condition, but also speaks to us personally and provides guidance for us as a faith community. That's why, as Marianne said, we talk about when we gather for business, we aren't seeking consensus, we're seeking God's will. It's a meeting for worship for the purpose of business. We take seriously that Christ speaks to each one of us and that Christ speaks to us as a meeting, that Christ gives us direction and guidance. That's why we're doing this vision journey right now. That's why we're completely involved in trying to get input because we want to hear from each of you what Christ is saying to you and speaking to you in terms of, of, of where Deep River Friends is going and the vision and dream that, Deep River Friend, that God has for Deep River Friends. And so we believe Christ speaks to us individually and collectively and we can hear that voice. And sometimes it's done in such a way that we see things differently than maybe how the past saw them or how earlier generations saw them, or how earlier, uh, or earlier groups saw them. There's a wonderful story that goes around about a little girl that sees her mom preparing a ham for a meal. And she sees her mom cut off the ends of the ham. And she says to her mother, she says, Mom, why do you cut the ends of the ham off whenever you, whenever you, you bake the ham? She says, well, I don't know. She says, I suppose it lets more of the juices in, but it's what your grandmother did. Why don't you call your grandmother and find out? So she calls her grandmother. She says, Grandma, she says, why do you cut the ends of the ham off when you bake the ham? She says, I don't know. I suppose it lets more of the juices in. But I don't know. It's what my grandmother did, or my mother did. So why don't you call your great-grandmother? So she calls her great-grandmother, who happened to still be alive, and she says, great-grandmother, why do you cut the ends of the ham off when you put it uh, in the oven? Why, would, why did you do that? And her great-grandmother just laughed. She says, well, it's honey. She says, I didn't have a pot big enough to hold the ham back then. <laughs> I had to cut the ends of the ham off. How many times do we take cutting off the ends of the ham and we spiritualize it into something that has to be done forever and ever? That's just because the way they did it. 
See, the Spirit comes to us as the living Christ and says, how can you be Christ's people, Christ's church in this day, in this context, in this point and time? Sure, they cut the end to the ham off back then, but there's probably a reason why they did it. What is your purpose? What is your reason? Why are we here and who are we to be in this moment, at this place? And then the last thing I would just say is this. To experience firsthand the condition of the world that we're called to love. And what I mean by that is if we carry anything from our Quaker heritage, it's that early friends and even friends today chose not to turn their backs on the world's suffering, but to experience firsthand the condition of the world and to offer the world love, even in the form of relief and social justice. When I do the couple's tune-up, we do it monthly. I shared with them a few months ago this idea of what's called... um, turning away, turning aside, and turning towards. Now, I'm going to try something here uh, as we close, and, and I feel this is important. I want Linda to come up here, if I could. I know I'm surprising her and shocking her. She's now angry at me. So, yeah, what else is new? Um, it, I know, I know. I, I figured if I told you, you wouldn't do it. Come on over here. What the, what, the, what the Gottmans, uh, uh, a couple on marital therapy, talk about is this. There are three postures we can take towards each other. Now, this isn't about marriage in general. I'll get to the other point in a moment. But there are three postures we can take toward one another as a couple. There is... Yes, loosen up, yeah. There is turning away. Put your back to me. Turning away simply means that you've just turned away from each other that you want nothing to do with each other, and this is it, and I don't even want to have to collaborate with you. There is turning aside, which is side by side, and you're a little bit closer to collaborating, but you're not really looking at each other. You're not facing one another. You're not vulnerable with one another. You're in kind of just maybe looking at each other every now and then, but you're kind of withdrawing and ignoring and not paying attention to each other. This is what sometimes couples do when they fight. They either turn away, or they turn aside. What they say is this. The key to a healthy relationship is turn towards, where you're sharing with one another. You're paying attention to one another. You're looking at each other. You're vulnerable with with one another, and you're open with one another, and you're making contact, and you're connecting with each other. All right, thank you very much. You can sit down. Here's the thing that I want to pull from that. So many people, I think, have a negative view of church today because they've seen the church do this. They've seen the church turn away. This is the church, and this is the world. And we've turned away sometimes in judgment. We've turned away sometimes in indifference. We've turned away sometimes because we don't want to have to deal with those issues. And sometimes we get a little bit closer, and we, we turn side by side. We don't turn away, but we, we, we're right there standing beside them. But sometimes standing beside isn't enough. It's like saying, well, we're with you, but I really don't want to be vulnerable with you. I'm standing with you on this, but we really don't want to be involved. See, I think this is what the world needs. It's what Quakers did. It's what Jesus did. They need us to turn towards. To turn towards 
the world with an open posture of love and vulnerability, of openness, of saying, we are here for you to connect. Is there something theological about this? Can you find it? I think so. I think it's found in Jesus on the cross when he turned toward the world and he opened his arms wide open in the most vulnerable way possible. And he said, I am here. And God said, I am here for the world in love. When we can experience firsthand the pain and the suffering of the world and we turn towards the world, our community, and our city, it makes a huge difference. That's what early friends did. And that's what I hope we continue to do. To have that firsthand encounter, you and I, who do you say Jesus is in your life? Who do we say Jesus is in our life as a meeting? To have that firsthand encounter in which we collectively discern what God wants for us and where we're going, and then to have that firsthand encounter with the pain and the hurt of what's outside our walls. We don't turn away from them, but we turn towards them and say, we're willing to be with you. We're willing to connect with you. We're willing to love you.